So we really do believe in this idea of subsidiarity, that it's better for neighbor to help neighbor before the state helps your neighbor. In fact, the mantra, the thing that we teach through True Charity at our foundation workshops in different cities is smaller, closer. So we encourage every leader to be thinking smaller, closer. Before you send somebody to the further, bigger, think smaller, closer. Uh, and that's, that's how we should be helping people. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard James Whitford, Executive Director of Watered Gardens Ministries, speaking on the challenges of poverty we face here in our communities. Whitford supports the economic principle of subsidiarity, a social practice where neighbors help neighbors so the state doesn't have to intervene. This discourages reliance on the welfare state and avoids government centralization and bureaucracy. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Welcome to Act in Line Podcast. My name is Dan Churchwell, Director of Program Outreach here at the Acton Institute. And today it's my pleasure to introduce James Whitford. He is the Executive Director of Watered Garden Ministries. He and his wife, Marcia, founded the ministry in Joplin, Missouri in 2000. Now it's a 105-bed mission working with the homeless and the poor. And uh, James founded an organization called True Charity Initiative, which branched off of these ideas in 2012 to champion a movement of privately funded, effective charity organizations that function at the most local level. James received his bachelor's degree in biology from Pittsburgh State University and his doctorate in physical therapy from the University of Kansas Medical Center. James, welcome to the podcast. Dan, thanks. It's great to be here with you today. And I, I want to piggyback off that last little piece I read from your uh, bio. Tell me about the genesis, you know, from a successful physical therapist and the work you did there, I think you said for over a dozen years, into the nonprofit sector. Tell sure. us what was the impetus. For right. It? Yeah. Well, uh, it really was <clears throat> my faith in Christ that uh, ignited something in me to want to do something for people in my community. And so it was, uh, you know, both me and my wife just feeling like we needed to do more. And uh, of course, you know, serving in the medical field is it w was a blessing, and still do a little bit of that. But, uh, but but just felt like there was there were a lot of issues of poverty in our uh, community, and we needed to do something. We didn't know exactly what to do, but we knew we needed to do something. Okay, and so what did that transition look like? Moving from a physical therapist to uh, you know, creating a 501c3. It's not just you wanted to do something. I mean, you created an organization. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, so during the time of, of just practicing physical therapy and, and began to uh, dream, uh, pray, think, plan about this ministry. And uh, uh, actually, you know, 
An interesting story went, uh, spent a few days literally on a mountaintop, fasting and praying, uh, listening for what God was saying about how to get this ministry going, and uh, came back from that experience and shared uh, what I felt like was an outline, you might say, or a skeletal structure for this ministry called Watered Gardens. And um, uh, my wife and I moved forward at that time. And Dan, I was still practicing physical therapy while the ministry was underway. Oh, sure. So we launched it and I I pretty quickly went to a three-day-a-week work week at the hospital, uh, volunteered the rest of the time at the ministry. My wife was volunteering at the ministry. And in fact, it, it, it's unique. It didn't seem unique then, but the first 10 years of our ministry, there was no payroll or staff. It was all volunteer driven for oh, the first A hundred percent. A hundred percent, right. And then finally grew to the point that I left my physical therapy career and moved into the executive director position. That's really interesting. What, what um, at that 10-year mark, what was that pivot? Like that you felt like you needed to bring on was was it the amount of work you were you know needing to do or, or what what helped you think uh, to to grow the the employees? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a demand. I mean, there was a demand for more administration at that point because uh, it was a ministry that continued to grow, and so uh, the, I could not dedicate the time and have you know wear both hats, and so it was time to to take a shift. It was interesting because sitting down with my board of directors, uh, I said, look, if if May Maybe we can hire myself and my wife as full, the first full-time employees of this mission and pay us combined what I make three days a week as a physical therapist. <laughs> and right. that's what we did. Oh, and wow. So, so we were able to, you know, raising five kids at the time. Oh, yeah. And, and realizing, yeah, you've got to put food on the table. It was nice to be able to make that transition and, uh, and, and, and be able to do it without, you know, taking a, a hit, you might say, in the pocketbook for our family. But, but then, and then we continued to grow after that. So, so we talk a lot about vocation at Acton and um, was that hard for you to, to go from physical, you know, a, a, the identity of a physical therapist working in the, the medical world to a nonprofit leader? With like, did you feel like you were leaving something behind? No, not necessarily. It's interesting that you bring this up though because the thing that was going on in my own heart and mind at that point was I, I didn't really want to be a paid employee of the mission. I, I, I loved the volunteer idea. I loved, I loved the aspect of volunteerism. I felt good about it. I wanted to be there if I could. And as I resisted, literally resisted some of this transition in discussions with my board, I remember one board member who was a pastor and a wise man, and, and he just, he highlighted something that made me realize that there was a potentially a subtle pride at work that I did not realize. And it was this idea of, you know, the glory of a volunteer. And, and as he brought that to me, I thought, boy, that really could be what's going on in my own mind and heart is that I want to be a volunteer because it's just a better, it's a, it's a better thing to do. But really, uh, at that point, I, I felt freer to make that transition then. It's interesting to hear, yeah, when people make those kinds of changes, what what counsel or mentors they had or, or the impetus for that. Uh, I, I really like, the, you know, the name is, is fascinating. Where does where does the watered gardens right. theme, you know, yeah. what, what is that? <laughs> yeah. The first couple of years of our ministry, we'd get phone calls from people that would uh, think that we were selling bird baths or garden hoses or landscaping <laughs> things. Or, and uh, it always gave us that opportunity to share scripture because watered gardens, the name comes out 
out of Isaiah chapter 58. And it is a, a point in Scripture where uh, God is really chastising his people for just kind of going through the motions. Uh, I think uh, you'll read, you know, they were bowing their heads like reeds in the wind and dressing in sackcloth and ashes. But in verse 6, he says, is, is this not the fast that I've chosen for you, for you to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? In Isaiah 58.10, he says, to extend your soul or your life to the hungry. And then, and there are promises that are, that you know, are contingent upon how we help the poor. And one of those is you will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose waters never fail. It's a beautiful passage in in Isaiah chapter 58. That's a powerful image, Mm -hmm. the the watered garden. You know, I mean, any kind of drought, right, is... Is negative, and and so um, how have you? It, it seems like you've taken that motto or that concept of watered gardens. Um, and one of the phrases I, I picked up from some of your other work is um, is essentially you're trying to do work that ennobles people rather than enables people. In other words, there you know you um, you have a phrase that uh, that work awakens worth. Mm-hmm. Can, can you you know what what is some of that uh, philosophy of of ministry or organizational philosophy that that drives you? Give give us a little more background yeah. on that. I love that word ennoble. That's that's exactly right. And um, one of our core values at our mission is human dignity. And uh, we, we define that as every person is a noble creation, you know, every person. And so we need to be able to see that. And of course, this is what Christ did. I mean, he, he would see things that you and I would see on the outside, right, that might cause us fear or disgust or a number of different emotions. But what Christ saw was the person that was created to... Uh, live a life that was different than the one that they were living at the time. And so he would then, of course, help them move in that direction. And that's, that's what we uh, have really trained ourselves to do at our ministry, our volunteers, our staff. It's just part of our culture now to view every person as a noble creation and to understand that though there may be poverty on the outside that may manifest in ways of addiction or uh, behavior issues or whatever, right? That there's a, there's a person made in the image of God that has a better and brighter future and that we should be a part of inspiring that person and dreaming with them and then walking alongside them to help them there. Yeah. Tell me, so so a lot of, you know, you hear that in, in ministries or nonprofits or even, you know, some churches that have these, organ, you know, walking alongside or, but there's, there's never a lot of, um, th- those seem like hooks to hang your ideas on. Well, you've actually hung a lot of those ideas and, and created very practical things that back up that language. So what are some of the, I think you mentioned there were, are there six elements to your organization that you've created um, that that show this, the, this ennobling? Sure. Yeah, there are six different ministries, but I think even more globally than those, and we, I'm glad to talk about each one of those with you, but uh, we have purposefully uh, remained a conduit for the church, um, vol- church volunteers to be active in the ministry. And so that's, that's so important because we are talking about walking alongside 
And so volunteerism becomes incredibly important and not just volunteer, but going beyond your typical volunteering where we're, we're talking about developing relationships, providing tools that help people sit down and actually develop relationships with folks. And that, that's very important. We've got to go beyond passing a meal across a line. I mean, that's something a volunteer might do, but there's, we've got to go beyond that. And so we're always thinking about different strategies and employing things. For, so that's, the, that's like the, 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 the culture that's in the, in the mission that's happening in these different operations. Like we've got one center that's in downtown Joplin. And this is Southwest Missouri. And the outreach center is where we're engaging people who are struggling on a lot of fronts, the, the chronic addiction, and um, they've got maybe chronic mental health, so serious mental health issues, uh, home, homelessness. And so we're meeting those folks there in that center. They, that we've got a shelter there for men and for women, a respite unit for people coming out of the hospital that don't have anywhere to go. There's a lot going on in that particular center. That's just one ministry. We've got a, a family shelter for moms and kids. Um, and then we've got a long-term program for men where they are going through work readiness and character development and getting bridged into employment. Um, we have a worth shop where people earn things they need, even the very basics of uh, maybe – Tell me more about that. What, what do you mean worth shop? Oh, yeah. that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So <clears> – <throat> and in those other three ministries I'm mentioning, again – how we're engaging the person, how we view the person is so important uh, that, that uh, they're not just a number coming in, but they're a person that's got uh, a history that's very unique. And then, you know, and how can we understand more about that? And, and then really uh, think about a tailored dream for that individual and set some goals. All of that's happening in those three ministries that I've mentioned. Uh, the Worth Shop uh, is a play on words. We believe that work awakens worth in people's lives. Well, we know that to be true. We've seen it time and time again. And so we developed a way where we can meet relief type needs like food, shelter, clothing, and a lot of other things without uh, having to just hand them out again and again and again. And so that tends to be the the thing that happens when a person needs is hungry, you feed them. If they come back again, they're hungry again, you feed them again. But then there is a, uh, a dependency that can form in that that's not healthy. So how do you deal with that? Well, we created this worth shop where people can go and do a little bit of work, a labor uh, for something that they need. So they earn meal vouchers or they'll earn something to shop inside of our thrift area or they earn nights of shelter. And of course, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. If a person's full-time employed outside and they're staying in our shelter, they don't need to be in a worth shop earning their 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 shelter. They're actually saving f the income that they're making. So, but the idea is that everybody's got a gift, uh, a skill of some sort. Let's find it yeah. and let's make them partners. And let's get into reciprocity rather than this one-way handout stuff. And this seems like there's a lot of work. I mean, it, 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 uh, you, you've put a lot of thought into that, but it, um, it seems like your company culture would really – I mean, everybody has to be in tune, right? If you have some sort of intake officer or, or case, I mean, to understand these people, that's – it seems like it would be easier to simply give a person a meal. Well, it is. Rather than under, you know, try to understand. So how do you uh, cultivate that, that culture 
so that you're, you're that holistic, that, that anthropology, like you said, is, is important in, in the culture. Right. It's education okay. and making sure that uh, like we've uh, – every volunteer and staff goes through uh, our online – True Charity online modules. We may talk a little bit about our True Charity initiative mm-hmm. at some point, but we have online modules at uh, uh, that – are seven marks of effective charity. And each one takes uh, an hour and a half to two hours. Well, our volunteers and staff will go through each one of those so that they can understand some of the ideas and principles you and I are talking about. And and then, of course, it's something that you bring up. Any good leader is going to repeat these things in, uh, that are important to maintain culture, uh, your, your values and that type of thing. They're always in the forefront of what we're doing and what we're teaching and communicating. Well, I love that you have – I mean, that, that would be seven uh, – nine to 10 hours worth of videos, right? That are, are educational. I mean, that um, that helps align people into your mission and, and, and your vision. Very much. Oh, man, I love that. Um, how many full-time employees do you have? Well, we have uh, probably about 25 FTEs or full-time equivalencies. So there are some part-time folks. The okay. staff right now is 32. Wow. Well, good. And then a vast majority of volunteers, I would assume, that to help. Yeah, we'll fill more than 10,000 volunteer shifts a year. So there, and that's through hundreds of volunteers that are uh, a part of the mission. You know, you, you say assisting people um, uh, to find employment is a driving force of your work. And I, I read somewhere that you said, uh, so we're helping people get employed, but we believe a lot of that has to do with how we perceive them as they come through our doors, do you perceive them as recipients of charity or do you perceive them as people who have the capacity and potential? So that's something we have really trained hard for our team to think about. Uh, so that, that idea, you know, you say, you, do you perceive them as recipients of charity or people who have potential? What, what do you think, you know, you, why, why do you use that dichotomy? Well, I think it's really an important conversation. I mean, all throughout America, we've got a very heartfelt, compassionate missions and charities and churches that want to help the poor. And so just because, just at that point right there, help, uh, we're here because we want to help the poor. So now you're talking about trying to define poverty, but mm-hmm. if we just think of it in simple terms, we could say, okay, well, let's just think of it on the way of material poverty. So a person comes through the door, you're there to help the poor. What will they tend to tell you? Well, they're going to tend to tell you what they don't have yep. or what they need or what their lack is. And as the charitable uh, worker, you might say, we get focused on that. Like we get focused on, and we call this inattentional blindness. We get focused on one thing and then we're blind to something else. And so what we want to do is make sure we don't ignore the need, but we do a very good – we need to do a very good job at saying, what do you have? So it's, it's, a, it's the difference between what we define as dysfunctional categorization and functional categorization. Dysfunctional categorization is categorizing people into a group because of dysfunction, incapacity, inability. But what we need to do is make sure we're looking at functional categorization. What are you able to do? What can you do? What's your gifting or skill? And see if we can uh, help a person capitalize on that and become their own uh, – uh, a protagonist and their journey out of poverty, right? They've got to own that. But but so I believe God has given each one of us something on the inside that needs to be ignited to work toward that end, not that help isn't needed and not that we don't need to 
you know, quote, come alongside or we need to assist. But certainly a person, let me just say it this way, Dan, a, a person cannot be lifted out of poverty. I just don't believe that that's possible. I don't think a person can be lifted out of poverty. If we're really going to see, if people are going to escape poverty, it's because they do it with the right kind of help. There's some sort of empowerment alongside of them. Is, is that kind of what you mean? It's, exactly. And, and even more importantly, that God has given each person power. So the, when we just talk about power in its strict form, like from a, from a standpoint of physics, right? It's the ability to move something over time. The more that you can move in a less amount of time, that's what that would be considered in a physics standpoint, more power. So what can you do? What, what, what capacity do you have? God's given each person some amount of power here, even though it may have dwindled under past trauma, physical things that have happened to your body, et cetera. But what is it that you have that would be your own power? And then how can we come alongside to empower you more to be able to rise out of poverty? You know, I, I like that philosophy. Um, we at, at Acton, you know, we like to say con- we like to connect good intentions to sound economics. And a lot of people have good intentions, right? They they, they want to do a lot of good, um, but uh, there's a you know a raft of books. You know, when helping hurts, um, toxic charity. You know, these and it. Um, it sounds like you've had quite the evolution in your 22 years of leading this, right? You've had a you you've had a uh, a change, or you, you, you're always trying to do better. You, you got introduced to Acton um, a decade or no, so right. ago, probably more than that. Yes, and in fact, we, we were talking earlier. You were speaking for us, you know, right before COVID shut down all of our programming um, in person. You were at one of our last events in Denver, where we were speaking to city leaders in in Denver, and so now you're speaking for us. But can you just briefly share a little of the evolution? Um, I know you said the word subsidiarity, kind of when you were first introduced to that, sparked some ideas, and just tell me a little bit about the evolution of your this philosophy at Watered Gardens. Sure. Uh, I think a lot of it came through, well, being a problem solver. So, and I think it's almost part of our culture. We're we're a bunch of problem solvers, and we believe there's a solution to every problem too. So let's find it. Uh, but and within the first couple of few years, my wife and I noticed that the handout model, uh, the redistribution center that we were, where people would donate goods and we'd give them away, and it was pretty much that simple. Now we loved people. A lot of compassion in that, but we were not seeing the outcomes that we had hoped to see in people's lives. And so as a problem solver, right, we're, we're like, okay, we've got to change something. We've got to do something different. And about that time, you know, there were some personal experiences and other things that I went through, read the book Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton, came to an Acton event. I, I mean, the first one was, uh, I think, toward a free and virtuous city, maybe, was the first event. And yeah, it was very uh, eye-opening for me to to see philosophy, principles that were matching what I was experiencing, what I was, the learning curves I was going through at the time. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing it from a, from almost a heady level and uh, the philosophical level, but then to take some of those ideas and go back even more encouraged to change the way that we were operating our ministry and, uh, and, and then did that. And we're still doing it. I mean, it's far from perfect, but we continue to work on employing things that respect human dignity and really help people. 
And and some of that evolution um, started – so you, you started the organization in 2000 and then in 2012, this true charity initiative got off the ground. Can you – what? and it, they're, they're kind of linked but not – you know, tell, yeah. tell me what that is and how it fits into what, what your sure. ideas are. Yeah. So when we, uh, w- you know, came to Acton and then uh, read some books – Going through the learning curves, realized we've got to change some of what we're doing, started that worth shop for the first time and and began to ask people who were able to earn things that they needed. And when we did that and became more relational in, in some of our ministry and more uh, intentional and uh, investigational, I mean, all the things that ch- good charity is about – uh, we went from seeing about 4,000 people a year through our doors to about 1,200. So, huh. yeah, so we had like what some people would call a strange mass exodus where we were seeing lots of people through our ministry doors. It was kind of chaotic and we were helping so many people, but really not helping very many at all. When, and then it went down to this smaller number. So we asked ourselves, where did these 2,800 people go? Where, what happened? And of course, well, what we think happened is that there were a lot of other places to get whatever the need was for the day. Mm-hmm. Rather, I mean, watered gardens used to be that place where they just hand you anything you wanted. Well, they're not doing that anymore, so maybe there's some other place we can go to get what we need for the day. And we realized then we need to do something beyond influencing the culture within our own four walls, but instead influencing the culture of a community. Well, what does that look like? Well, we began a drumbeat of education with Lunch and Learns, coupling the ideas I learned at Acton, some things I was reading, bringing together The Tragedy of American Compassion mm-hmm. was a formative book. Sure. And so brought together some of this stuff and created these, these Lunch and Learns for leaders, uh, began to do radio public service And you mean leaders, like who, who would come oh, to those? right, sure. Well, uh, actually, anybody who cares, right, about okay. getting better at helping people who are struggling in poverty, some of those were organizational leaders in our city. Mm-hmm. Some of them were volunteers right. that just wanted to do a better job. And uh, and and so, yeah, then that was that was part of that. But we did radio public service announcements, television, PSAs as well, billboards, basically impacting our entire community to rethink how to really help people who are struggling in poverty, uh, apart from uh, the the uh, typical pity or the compassion that rises up that causes you to want to just hand something out mm-hmm. to meet the superficial need instead of maybe the deeper need. Yeah. And you, I think you have three core values that drive you um, and, and somewhat provocative possibly. Yeah. In, you know, and the the first one might might be the most provocative, but it. Um, I'll just list the three. You, you you want privately funded. You want to encourage organizations to be privately funded, outcome driven, and um, work oriented. I mean, right. am, I, am I saying that right? Are those the yeah yeah you are, and those are what we call the pillars. We call them pillars of true charity. And uh, those, yeah, have always been there and uh, feel like they're, they're, they are very important for different reasons, of course, each one. But if we're going to really solve problems of poverty in America today, I think we need to lean into and embrace privately funded, outcome-driven, work-oriented solutions. And we may use different words sometimes like voluntary, voluntarily sourced. 
you know, or voluntary uh, charity. But certainly uh, getting away from government-funded solutions is going to be an important part of uh, success in the long run of helping uh, change the picture of poverty in America. Mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> yeah, that's because public, uh, publicly funded or government funded programs tend to crowd out private solutions. And so uh, there's some research you can look into with the crowd out uh, effect that occurs when the government steps in and the private sector feels relieved of responsibility or no longer sees the need so pressing any longer because it's being met by some other source. But uh, there are a couple of things. One is rarely is the real need being met, which is going to be found in relationship being developed with that individual. And that's, you know, that is the big thing that gets, I think, crowded out. It's, it's not just the crowd out of private, the private sector or private dollars or it's the crowd out of real relationships that should be occurring. So that's the second thing. We need to see healthy relationships in family and in community. And those natural, those should be natural relationships that are well-formed, natural interdependencies within neighborhoods and families. And when you have government stepping in to help meet needs uh, that sometimes can provide more robust material uh, it, it tends to draw people away from some of the types of uh, resource that would be more helpful, that's going to be more relationally based. So it's very important that we look at, in my opinion, that we look at privately funded solutions. Uh, and then there are economic reasons as well. I mean, just when we're talking about, I think, our, we're $30 trillion in debt mm -hmm. at this point. And so maybe efficiencies, you mean there, there might be efficiencies that could be captured in privately funded organizations? Well, yeah, yeah, certainly that, yeah. I, I think um, there, I don't, you know, I think I've heard, and I don't know this, Dan, to be necessarily true, but I think a dime of every dollar that runs through a large bureaucracy at the federal level makes it back to the person, you know, your neighbor in need. Well, wouldn't it be better just to give them the dollar yourself, even though we don't advocate handing out money to people? But you, you get the idea that it's more efficient if we can be effective and insightful and uh, uh, about how to help our neighbor in need before the state helps your neighbor. So would it be fair to say when you went from 4,000 to 1,200 that it, you, um, for the lack of a better illustration, you might have been helping 4,000 people an inch deep, but you're now helping 1,200 a foot deep. Like you're, you're helping them more holistically? Is that – or you're understanding the needs better? Is that right or – No, oh, that's exactly right. I mean you only have so much resource. Right. And so, right, if you – what we did is shifted our resource to dive deeper in how to really solve problems, mm -hmm. how to really help people instead of feel good about treating the symptoms of poverty, which are like hunger, homelessness, you know, don't have any money. Yeah. And th so you can treat those symptoms, but that does not uh, treat the underlying issues that often cause poverty. And so to, to make that shift is a difficult shift that requires more resource. You're not going to have the ability to see 4,000 people through your doors and do a good job with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and this True Charity Initiative is now in multiple states, right? I mean, it's a, it's an edu- how would you describe it? Is it an education program or what? You know, what is the initiative? Yes, yeah, like, yeah. So the the initiative's purpose is to champion privately funded effective charity nationally at the most local level. So we really do believe in this idea of subsidiarity that it's better for neighbor to help neighbor before the state helps your neighbor. Mm -hmm. In fact, the mantra, the thing that we teach through True Charity at our foundation workshops in different cities is smaller, closer. Mm -hmm. So we encourage every leader to be thinking smaller, closer. Before you send somebody to the further, bigger, think smaller, closer. Uh, and that's that's how we should be helping people. So there's a lot of education that's a big part of true charity, but it's education, it's training, it's tools. And so we are equipping uh, leaders and organizations yeah, across the United States at this point uh, in helping implement some things in their own programming that can help them shift. Uh, for example, we've created a model action plan for an earn it model, which is our worth shop. So we took what we've learned and we've created documentation and guiding videos and different things like that that you can now uh, take a look at at truecharity.us and then say, I want to put that in my own community. I want to have a place where people who want to help the poor but can't figure out how to employ the poor could at least send them. Uh, as Marvin Olasky says, to provide a work test, right? This was a thing in the late 1800s. But how can we test a person's willingness to really take control of their own situation? Well, the, uh, having a worth shop or an earn it model in your community is a great way to do that. So we're providing those kinds of tools for communities and nonprofits nationally to be able to implement some things that we think not only make a lot of sense, but they also respect the innate capacity that that exists in people as people made in the image of God. What what would you do then? I mean, I I love that model, but if you read, you know, um, I moved my family to, from the Pacific Northwest to Grand Rapids almost six years ago to take this job. And, and um, in the Pacific Northwest, there, there's rampant homelessness. And the city I moved from, the, the homelessness has um, exp- grown exponentially. And I still have friends working in, in some of those service sectors um, in, in Washington State. And the, you hear the word chronic applied to this and and the word I think you even mentioned it earlier but the concept or the ideas it seems it's more in the open of trauma so you have chronically mentally ill or chronic homeless or what what I mean do you do, do you buy into that or you know what do you do with some I mean it would seem there is a population that do have chronic issues so how do you identify the capacity or the the hierarchy of a person. I mean, that just seems like a lot of work. Well, it is. It does require you to slow things down to get to know people. You you can't look at uh, Skid Row and say, we're going to solve the problem of Skid Row. Uh, It's it's an individual that you need to connect with. You know, we we had a, a lady who used to push a grocery cart around our town. She would sleep in the little trolley depots. Um, upright because she was too fearful to lie down. And, um, and so, you know, over time we were able to engage her. Uh, finally, she, she said, you know, I want to come into uh, your shelter. So if after, you know, this was 
two, two, three years of her being on the streets, finally got her into shelter. She had to sleep in a recliner because she still had not learned how to sleep reclined, had to work that back to the point to where she was able to sleep reclined finally. She was with us. I mean, our average length of stay for an adult in our shelter is like 34 days, but she was with us for months and months. I mean, I want to think more than six months. But during that time, even though she would have been somebody that, uh, yeah, probably had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, I mean, there were a lot of problems, she would still help out around the mission. She developed relationships with us. It was very meaningful and important for her and was a part of her coming off the streets for good. And so that, yeah, so uh, it's, that's a person that you would say, if you met, you might say, oh, yeah, I wish we were still doing, you know, institutionalized, you know, insane asylums or something, because that's where she needs to be. What I really think's got to happen is uh, compassionate people have got to come out of the woodwork and step beyond serving a meal or writing a check. They've got to come down to Skid Row and meet one person and say, would you mind having coffee with me? I just want to get to talk with you a little bit. Maybe that goes well, maybe it doesn't, but you got to give it a shot. And then you're going to find those people that are going to be just like that woman who after two or three years finally says, okay, I want to, I want to move in a different direction now. But it's not, it's not an easy lift. Yeah but it is what has to happen. We cannot solve this problem apart from individual one-on-one relationship development. And it seems like there has to be a real embeddedness. I guess I'm coming back to company culture of, of law. I mean, you're there for the long term. And it seems like, you know, our culture um, is transitory, right? You can, I mean, you can get up and just move anywhere, or, you know, where for, for a lot of people, it, it, it just seems like we're not, the average, I think, mortgage is seven years before, it, you know, I mean, so people are in their home seven years and they move on, whether whether it's up or, you know, out of the geographical region. Um, I mean, so you you are just embedded, you, you think embedded in a, in a neighborhood, in a community is, um, I mean, you're just you're just there for the long haul. You're just making that conscious investment. Yeah, I think that's a great. Yeah, you're talking what I would consider to be what's coined as Christian community development, yeah. right? So yeah. you're embedding in a community. You become really a part of that community, and I think that is that's that's great. It's not it's that's not absolutely necessary, but building a relationship. You may not live in that community, but building a relationship with somebody who's in that community can provide a bridge for them. And, you know, we talk about bridging social capital. It's this idea of uh, uh, relationships that allow the person to bridge outside of their own their own community that may be unhealthy. The, the, the relationships they have may be unhealthy, or it may just be the poor among the poor. But but to have a relationship and build that with that individual gives them a potential bridge out of that. And that can happen with a person who's living in that community, but it could happen from a person who's living outside of that community. But the relationship has got to be developed. And and, and so we, we talked briefly about privately funded, and, and the next piece is outcome driven. Right. And so I assume you mean metrics, right? Like yeah. track like um so the modern world, you know, data. Right. If it can't be counted, it doesn't count. I know. It, it, it sounds so a spiritual. Yeah, it does. So, so tell me about it. It's so necessary. Okay. Yeah. If we don't measure what matters, then we don't know how to change our programs to be more effective. And that's just the bottom line. I mean, we see it in medicine. We see it in, in all forms of science. And we really do need to apply it in our charity work. 
work. We've got to look at what resource are we spending and what are the outcomes from it. And so uh, this has been one of the greatest needs and has been one of the greatest joys in, in working with leaders to, to ask the question, what are you dreaming about in the future for the people you're helping? That's the question. What are you dreaming about for the future of people you're helping? Even people who are running a food pantry have things that they're dreaming for that go far beyond a meal or the food that they're handing out. So we, so we take those and we develop what we call soft outcomes out of those. So most of the time we want people to be in healthy relationships or we want people to uh, uh, have sustained employment or whatever it is. So those become these soft outcomes. And then we ask those leaders this question, how do you know if you're making progress toward that or not? And this begins to develop what we call key performance indicators or metrics that are actually objective and measurable that help us gauge whether we're really moving toward those outcomes that, have, uh, that are connected to the dream. <clears throat> Most of the time what we find is that the program that you're doing right now may not actually be able to accomplish that, so you want to change what you're doing. And uh, so it's very important that we measure outcomes. If we don't, we're only measuring the the number of people coming through our doors or the number of meals that we give out or the number of sh shelter nights that we provide or now isn't that what sells though you know in marketing <laughs> i mean is it right i mean it, we see those brochures yeah. or uh, you know i think there's a shift i think there's a shift happening okay. right now i think uh, people are realizing hey we've been throwing money or we've yeah. been throwing material at a problem for a long time i mean hey i want to feed the next guy just like anybody else but uh, i've been writing a check to help feed people now for a long time and i just don't know that it's making a difference. So I need to ask my organization that I love, hey, are you making a difference? And I think donors are beginning to do that. I think there's a shift that's occurring mm -hmm. and uh, it's good. And so the, uh, the private sector is going to have to become really good at, at making sure that uh, we're not operating off of compassion alone, but coupling wisdom with it and measuring whether we're really bringing about the life change that we hope for people. And if not, we've got to be brutally honest with ourselves and humble enough to say, I've been doing it wrong, which is exactly what we did for years. We were just, we were doing it wrong and finally came upon that. And then you've got to make a choice when you realize it. It's like, am I going to allow pride to rise up and say, I'm not, I haven't been doing it wrong and and, and stick to my guns and continue doing what I've been doing? Or am I going to admit that I've got to change something, which at the same time is to admit I haven't been doing it as well as I could have? And that's not a hard thing to admit. Mm -hmm. Or that's not an easy thing. I'm sorry. That's not an easy thing to admit. But it is important that we come to that point. That way we can always better what we're doing. But we've got to measure impact in order to, to know. And how do you um, – what, what do you, you – know, I, I assume there's a hierarchy of what you measure or – um, who, who helps set that standard? Do you have a, I assume, is there a board that helps govern wa uh, watered gardens? Well, yeah, we have a board of directors mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I, they weren't so instrumental, I think, in forming our outcome domains, which are connection, career, and character. Okay. So we have these three outcome domains. And when we measure some things that are, would fall outside of that that we think are important as well, but those are our, our three hubs that we're looking at. How well are we doing mm -hmm. with our programs? How well are we doing in helping people reconnect to family, to churches, 
reconnect socially, you know, develop to move into mentoring relationships. Character, we've developed a way where we can measure character on a scale for guys in our long-term program. There are other things we're doing to look at character development as well. In career, we measure everything from uh, uh, voca vocation training to you know uh, employment and that type of thing. So we're looking at that across the board as well. Wow. So you so you go then and and then how often do you assess? Is that an annual assessment? It's Is that quarterly? Quarterly, okay. Yeah, so quarterly, uh, I sit down with our operations director and then the director of each one of our ministries, and we look at the data mm -hmm. and uh, and ask ourselves some questions. You know, is there something we should be doing differently here? How can we improve this? And it's a it's a great. I, I mean, it's it, it's something that every uh, charity and nonprofit that's in this sector needs to be doing because you will lay your head down better at night and rest knowing that you've really made some changes that uh, are going to bring more hope for people. So, so it's probably more about the the attitude of improvement rather than failure, right? I mean, you're just looking to tweak things. Right. Yeah, right, right. Well, there's no perfection this side of heaven. Yeah, fair <laughs> so fair <we're>, enough. <laughs> but we want to get as doggone close as we can. And so, right, it is it is looking at how do, how do we tweak things along the way. And uh, and there there may be some things that come that are really disruptive in nature that we go, ah, oh, yeah, okay, let's shelve this completely and do this instead. But you just, again, you're always driven to do the best that you can, but you don't know uh, what you know, what you need to change if you're not measuring what matters. So do you listen? I mean, as a leader then, you know, there's a lot of listening, I would assume, right? You're gathering the data, you're listening and engaging with your employees and volunteers. I mean, that feedback loop has to be pretty rich or thick, it right? It does. It does. I've joked before about I, I, my, my title should be chief listener. <laughs> and so that's exactly right. I mean, you've got to be listening to what's going on because, you know, uh, my love and my wife, you know, we have always went before watered gardens began. We were visiting homeless camps and abandoned buildings and walking down the railroad tracks to camps. And, you know, the, so we, uh, that was our heart to engage people just right where they were, right? Yeah. yeah. And now as the organization has grown, my job has become so much more administrative in nature. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we, we, so listening to those people who are now, you know, we still go out on Monday nights to homeless camps and go out to uh, visit people who've come out of our shelter that are now in apartments and see how they're doing. I'm not a part of that team any longer, but I'm listening to what they have to say. And, they're, you know, so it's very important that, uh, that I do that. Now, now, let's talk about, you know, this community initiative. Are there people that um, push back or, or, or what is the feedback from you know state maybe state funded or or federally funded organizations that see what you know are you are you having any kind of feedback loop there do, do they see what you're doing right yeah we've had in some communities we have had uh, folks that would be a majority government funded that will come to our workshops and have an affinity for what we're doing. They see they see that. Uh, there are some people that I've met, leaders who feel like their hands are very tied and they're frustrated by it. Like we will teach that investigational charity stuff, right? And maybe sometimes uh, it's it's more it's really more compassionate in the long run to actually withhold something 
rather than to give it, you know, after you've learned more of what's going on. Well, if your hands are tied and and the resource you're receiving forces you to hand it out, no questions asked, you can become frustrated with that. So we've we've seen some of that. And then, of course, we've also have our opponents, uh, people who believe that, you know, uh, we should embrace government-supported types of help. Um, and those folks, you know, typically don't align with us very well. And I always want to remind uh, folks, in fact, I remember meeting a lady who would be on what what we might say the other side of the fence or the other side of the aisle, and we were testifying in the state legislature. She was testifying in favor of some welfare program. I think I was testifying in opposition. But afterward, when we got together, we were just having a cordial conversation in the hall. And I remember asking her, I said, do you go to church somewhere? She said, yeah. She was from St. Louis. I said, okay. Uh, do you have a food pantry by chance? She said, yeah. I said, okay. Would you rather someone who's in need of food, would you rather them go to the government first or go to your church first for help? And she said, well, I'd rather them come to my church first. I said, okay, you and I are on the same page. That's really all I'm talking about. And so I just think this idea of uh, you know, neighbor helping neighbor, community helping neighbor, this idea of subsidiarity ought to be regarded and protected. And so we want to uh, we want to see the church be helpful in that regard before we see a government program. Not that we would call for the elimination of all government programs. We just want to see them used as last resort. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that makes sense in a lot of ways. So I forget who said it, you know, the quote, and they say it in jest, you know, that to run away from somebody who knocks on your door and says, you know, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help, <laughs> you know, that, and I, again, I forget who that originated from. But, it, but there is an element of thought that it, I mean, the government is who has the money, right? I mean, isn't that kind of a default? Like it the is. government, it is. It is. It is. That's exactly right. In fact, people feel like, and I've had this reported to me from folks that that were uh, afraid to give up. In this case, it was a, a group of people we were having some open discussion with, and they were afraid to give up their food stamp cards, even though they admitted they didn't need them. They, they said, yeah, we don't. I mean, there was a handful, and we're just having a nice dialogue around a table, and they're like, yeah, we don't really need them. They all agreed they didn't need them, but they were afraid to give them up. Because if they let them go, they may never get back on them again. Mm-hmm. So this is sad that people, you know, fear maybe taking a step off of that and, and moving into something that could be healthier. Uh, so a dependency. That's it, like the, there's a creation of dependency. There, yeah, there's a creation of it. Yeah, there's a creation of a dependency. And then we talk about the welfare cliff and whether that's real or not mm-hmm. and that type of thing, this idea of being – uh, if you make a little bit too much money, then you lose enough benefits that you don't want to make a little more Correct. money. And yeah. So yeah, but the fear, regardless, or perverse incentive. Yes, or, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's a real thing. I mean, whether whether people are actually going to fall off a cliff or not, right? Maybe not. The research would indicate if you jump, you're going to be fine. But the fear is very real, and so people do become dependent in some ways that are unhealthy. And uh, we were seeing it uh, with this group. The the thing that I was going to mention, Dan, is that in that group they said, uh, uh, one, one guy said, in any way, 
James, we don't know how long your ministry is going to be around. Because I was telling them, do you not eat here? They were like, yeah, we eat here. So we don't need food stamps. They all agreed. But we don't know how long you're going to be around here. But the government will always be there. Right. That was, yeah. And that was, so that's what reminded me when you said that. That is, a, I think, a common thought is the government will always be there to support us. It persists. Yeah, Yeah. it's there. Right. Right, right. Doesn't make it the best option, though. And do do you think that's a, 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 like, philosophically... That's probably the wrong way, but but practically, I mean, their organizations are fickle, or donors are fickle at times, and, and and there is some turnover or some churn in the nonprofit, and and so how I guess maybe it, it's back to your 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 long term project goals. You're you're trying to combat that idea, right? Yeah. Well, I have an incredible belief in the private sector to, I mean, in fact, I was asked by a U.S. congresswoman at one point while testifying in opposition to the recent food stamp uh, increase. And she said, do you really think that 42 million people could be supported by the private sector? Because that's how many people are on SNAP. Mm -hmm. The answer is they really already are. I mean, it's not <laughs> – the government yeah. doesn't have any money to support them other than what it takes through taxation. Right. So so there's capacity within the private sector to do it. It's a matter of uh, compassion and effectiveness and making sure that we're doing it well in a way that people don't remain dependent. 40, 42 million pe- – first of all, if we moved it toward to the private sector, 42 million people wouldn't – be knocking on the doors for food help. Yeah. There would be a lot of people that would naturally find some other route that would be more productive. But I do think that uh, there's incredible capacity in the private sector. A lot of it is being crowded out, uh, I think, by government intervention. And so we're, we're not seeing uh, compassion rise up and have its way as it normally would in, in a lot of situations because the need is not presented even though it still lies at the level of the soul and the human, the person who's struggling without the right relationships, without being in healthy community, uh, w- without being loved. And, and so we can placate the outward projection or the manifestation of poverty with all sorts of government stuff, but it never meets the need and unfortunately, it hides it in a way that we do not see compassion arising in a community the way that it should to meet it. Yeah. And, and I guess that's where we're coming back to subsidiarity, right? It's those who are closest to a problem who are best able to understand, think through, or in, engage the issue. Problem or you know, the issue, those who are closest to it can think through it best. Um, and is that why, you know, your view of anthropology, is that what makes this, you know, not just Joplin-centric? Because, you know, you, you created this initiative to take to others. So it's a, it's a philosophy of the human person regardless of where, you know what I mean, that these principles should be able to play out, whether it's in Seattle, Washington, right. Joplin, Missouri, or Phoenix, Arizona, right? I mean, That's right. Our view of the human person is being made in the image of God and realizing that God is a creator and a master producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we should be viewing one another as being made in that image as creators and producers. And we have not been built to be uh, on the consumption side. We've been built to produce. And so uh, if we do not engage people with that hope and expectation, then we end up uh, being a part of the problem and drowning out what should be 
happening very naturally in the way of uh, vocation and, and uh, purpose in life. Yeah. Because poverty seems to be able to sh- – I mean, if you look historically, there are different areas of – you know, just geog- geographically that were booming and then busting. Booming, you know, and, and so this it, – it's, it's hard that you're not saying these are the exact ways to fix an, you know, an, an area, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but you're saying this is how um, – what to be in tune with. Right. It reminds me of uh, something Arthur Brooks wrote in one of his books about complicated and complex. And he, in, his, in one of the – I think it might be uh, The Conservative Heart. But he's yeah. but in it, he's talking about uh, com, uh, poverty is complex. He says complicated is like a jet engine. And once you figure out how to build – it's a complicated problem. But once you figure out how to build a jet engine, then you can just mass produce them. Uh, co- uh, complex is like a football game because you no matter your predictive analysis or the tools, you just are not going to be able to absolutely with 100% know how a football game is going to unfold. Everyone is very different because it's complex. Similarly, people in poverty, right? Well, people are complex. So people in poverty, especially those situations, they're complex. They're not complicated. So we cannot create some sort of a blueprint solution to solve the issue of Skid Row chronic homelessness in LA or anything else, we're going to have to realize that every person is a complex individual and get to know an individual. Yeah, that's a great great way of centering uh, the mission. Now, uh, we just have time for a, a few more questions or ideas, but one thing I'm, I'm fascinated about, can you tell me a little bit about Neighbor Connect? Sure. Yeah, I think that sounds really, really. Well, it's one of our yeah, it's one of our ministries, Neighbor Connect, um, and we have for years been meeting one neighbor's need through another neighbor's skill. So this is the like, you know, in my background as a physical therapist, I practiced wound care. Right, I could be walking down the street past somebody who's got a chronic venous insufficiency ulcer. Right, they so it's like a leg wound, and they can get really serious and uh, because of vein problems. And but I may not know it. And that person may not know that I've got some advice for them that could be very helpful or a skill set. So what we did is develop the database of volunteers in our community that serve in a variety of different ways depending on their gift, their, their skill set. And then we can now uh, sort them basically and just uh, when we have a need, it could be somebody needs lawn care help, a widow with lawn care help or a, a single mom whose car is broken down or what have you, we're able to look through a database of people who are willing to help with that and then pair them up. So again, one neighbor's need being met by another neighbor's skill. And we're now looking at how to develop an app that would allow that to be even more streamlined where you could actually say, I want to look, I want to help people within a two mile radius of my home in the way of, and I, I, I can help with, you know, whatever it is, budget development. So this is a volunteer, like, yes, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And so as that need gets vetted at a Neighbor Connect Center and it goes into the system, your phone would ping and you'd be able to look at that and find out more information and see if that's a neighbor that you could help. So that's yeah. that's what we're working on right now. And I, yeah, love, love the idea of decentralizing and making more nimble the work of charity, more neighborly. More neighborly, yeah. I, I remember what I, this, I don't know what this says about me, but one of my earliest memories is thinking about, okay, my dad has a lawnmower and we mow the lawn. It takes about an hour every Saturday. And then it just sits in the garage. 
And what do we do with you know? And so I, even as a young man, I was thinking through you know how do we that that asset could be used by other people. And so this idea of this neighbor connect and how do we help um, something that we're not using tremendously at the, at the moment to to help another neighbor. And I, I love that concept. And how, how uh, uh, is that up and running now? Yeah, so Neighbor Connect has been a ministry for years that we've okay. had, and we've met, you know. And this app will just be a new kind the of app, a manifestation. Yeah. Yep, and, and the app will help uh, increase efficiency, but then also maybe allow it to uh, uh, scale into some other communities as well. Yeah, it'd be great. Wouldn't that be great if the future was not having your one stop shop in your city or your centralized type of charity form? But what if we could use technology today and become much more connected? and nimble at, at helping uh, people who are struggling in poverty. So it's kind of like Uberizing it. I'll use that term sometime. We were talking about Uberizing it. Yeah. As Uber disrupted the the taxi uh, business realm, right? And so it's the same kind of idea, the typical charity idea. Can we, can we see that done in a different way that's going to be even better? The difference is, is that uh, there will always need to be some investigation that's done about the need. And so that'll, that'll always have to be a, a piece of that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, man, you, I, I love the innovative nature or the, the, the creative nature that you do. And, and I, the more I hear about it, I mean, obviously I've heard you talk, you know, multiple times and, um, you really are – you practice what you preach. You, you believe in the capacity of the human person created in, in the image of God to, uh, you know, to live to their full potential. And uh, I just want to thank you. Thank you for the work you do. Where, where can people find you know, out more about you? What are, the, what are the places? What are the couple websites or areas where people could investigate further? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, truecharity.us. And so if you're interested in – tools and training, you know, how are we taking the ideas that you and I have been talking about and putting them into practice in your own community, your own church, your own nonprofit you're volunteering for, go to truecharity.us. And if you're just interested in learning more about uh, the model, the mission in Southwest Missouri, go to wateredgardens.org. And that'd be the other website to check out. So truecharity.us and wateredgardens.org uh, if you want to learn about uh, more about what James Whitford and, and his team is doing. So James, thank you for joining us today, and uh, may God continue to bless what, uh, what you're doing there. Thank you, Dan. You too. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.